listening to Chill Spot Radio. Mental health, especially amongst people of color, has long been stigmatized, inadvertently keeping our people from accessing and reaching mental well-being. This podcast aims to transform stigma into strength. Your hosts work in the mental health field, bearing in their experience within the mental health profession. We thank you for your time in this brave space. Your uh, doctorate in social work, right, from uh, University of Southern California? Yep, yep, June of last year. Yeah, congratulations. Um, so we are excited to have you on today because, um, you know, we always love to have uh, Black social workers on uh, on our podcast, um, but also um, because we, we would love to talk to uh, someone in a high position um, about mental health and what that looks like uh, as a Black man. Um, you know, sitting on uh, the council for a city that is known for uh, some of its uh, uh, historically racist policies um, and how there was an intersection uh, of those, uh, despite us being a pretty progressive city uh, since about 2020 uh, during the pandemic and some of the uprisings, we saw a real divide, um, and a lot of nasty things thrown uh, your way. You being the first elected uh, Black council member in the uh, 103 years of the city. Yeah, I mean, it's been interesting. I think I want to start by responding in a way, because I've heard from a lot of our our white residents or non-black residents in response to some of the vitriol uh, that I've received. Um, and you know, my relative level of calm uh, as a result. And I just had to be honest with them because you know, they'll say something like, how do you take that all? How do you, you know, absorb all those comments and still stay true to your values and say what you gotta say uh, without like being afraid? And for me, my sort of trademark response is, you know, I'm a black man in the United States of America. So if I walk outside, somebody might shoot me or hit me or claim that I look like somebody else or claim that they're afraid for their life or, you know, the list goes on and on. So why would I not be defiantly myself all the time in the face of the constant danger? And I know for me, from a relative level for other black men who are in uh, more impoverished areas, the danger is less. Uh, and I acknowledge that, uh, but it's still there. It's still there across America and it doesn't matter. We've seen the stories of UCLA professors being pulled over by UCLA cops. Uh, we've seen the story of elected Congress members being pulled over uh, by police for doing nothing and then being mistreated uh, it's, you know, a product of our culture that we don't talk about. And I don't want to go down the road too far, and I'll end with this. But one of the things that's really instructive to me is how in Germany, where we have the most pointed recent historical evidence of prejudice and prejudice that, if unchecked, 
leads to violence and genocide, they're required to teach their kids about World War II and about the Nazis and about Germany's very active role in that, about German people being the perpetrators of that. Uh, and the fact that we have this huge backlash in America about it, well, it's not even a backlash, it's a manufactured controversy around critical race theory uh, is, is weird because it's like, it's almost like, of course in Florida right now they have don't say gay, uh, which is some other bullshit I might cuss uh, during this podcast. But like, uh, I feel like for the most part in America for a long time, there is this brief period from the late 60s to like maybe like 84 where we're like, yes, racism is a problem we need to do about, do something about it. But now it's like, don't say black. Because if you do, then you have to deal with the history of blackness and whiteness and how Irish people didn't used to be black, didn't, didn't used to be white, Italian people didn't used to be white. Um, and, you know, this creation of whiteness and blackness is really all about keeping people down. But black people have always been at the bottom. Black women in particular, black queer women are at the very, very bottom. But I, I feel it's interesting that other countries address it in a different way. I, I feel like sometimes uh, people think I have a thin skin, but I'm like, uh, come to a council meeting. You will, you will probably think the opposite afterwards, but it doesn't necessarily affect me as much. Uh, I do think it's instructive for a number of liberal white people who assume that we are far beyond this type of vitriol and uh, this, this type of really frightening language which in the moment doesn't scare me, but when it's combined with what happened in Buffalo last week and what has happened on a regular basis in this country with uh, heavily armed, mostly young white people targeting black people, targeting Asian people, targeting Latino people, it's something that we need to talk about honestly. Uh, and you know, if I can do my part in Culver City and local government, that's great. But we need to hear the federal government talking. Yeah, um, and, you, and you said a lot there. And I also want to, when introducing you, I totally forgot to mention you were running for Congress, um, United States House Rep. Ooh, I should already know District Thirty Seven, um, where I used to. I, work actually um and so yeah uh fingers crossed uh, for you but uh all right any comments dr lipson i just love the way you in a concise way discussed some of the some of the reasons why we are still seeing the level of vitriol around race and racism uh, and and it, it has a lot to do with education and, and stereotypes and stigma and prejudice and bias and all that stuff. And it's something we know to be true is like, how are we educating folks, right? And we recognize it starts in the home. But even if we are able to teach it in a critical way, like critical race theory, then folks can understand the history. And another 
point that you brought up is the generation that's doing this, that we're seeing. These are younger folks, right? Um, that, that's acting in, in, in this way. And so there's a message that is being sent, right? And when we deny it, when we don't address it, then it only continues to perpetuate itself in, in, in our society. And so I, I, I think that's important. Go ahead. Well, one of the things that like is super pertinent to me, like when I was completing my MSW at UCLA, um, instead of doing like a comprehensive exam, you know, I did like, you know, a master's thesis. My thesis was a documentary about the history of um, race after six, I think at that point it was 50, 60, I forget the number, years after Brown versus Board of Education. And, you know, most of the evidence says that we're more segregated in the West and in the Northeast in particular, and in many parts of the South um, than we were way back then. But the, the, the thing that's startling about, about Los Angeles County is that if you look at LAUSD, it's mostly black and brown. And the reforms that are made in LAUSD um, or, you know, on the state level really apply to black and brown students. A lot of the white students in Los Angeles County go to private school or go to smaller school districts. So from an educational perspective, they're, they're engaging in different things. A lot of private schools are much more progressive. And they will tell you that history is written by the winners and they will tell you that there are a lot of people left out and they will tell you that you know a lot of modern um historians are really looking for those other voices that we did not grow up hearing about but then there are the other schools that basically feed you american mythology and they tell you that everything that is good in the country comes from capitalism and the free market uh, and the things that are bad are just because these other people, these races or these other genders or these queer folks or these poor folks are inferior. Um, and that's really what our myth says. It's like the best thing that you can do is be as American as possible, which means being as much not yourself as possible and homogenizing yourself and assimilating. Um, and that's not that's not the history of innovation in our country. The people who were the big innovators, the people that we hold up as uh, examples, if you look at their true history, they were always different thinkers and different doers. Even if you just look at white people, if you look at like Helen Keller, uh, she was a radical socialist and a feminist. You know, if you look at uh, Ben Franklin, he was a lot of different things. Some of them not safe for work, uh, but like you know, <laughs> he he was he wasn't a normal. Uh, I'm just going to do whatever everybody else is doing type of thing. And you know, if you look at the people that we hold up across race, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., even JFK, um, even as racist as he was. Woodrow Wilson and uh, him pushing for the League of Nations, they are all outside of the expected norm. Um, they are all people who are pushing for us to do more uh, in an empathetic way, even though some of this are, them are super racist and super sexist. Um, uh, They're they still not going with the flow and not going with the flow is more American uh, than what we are sold by our government uh, every day. That's real. 
That is yeah. true. I think it's important, you know, as we're getting into this, I think some of our listeners are probably want to know, like, how did you get to mayor? Like, how, how did you get here? You talked about some of your education that you've had. Can you do just a, a, a overview, kind of what got you to here, what interests you, et cetera? Uh, well, for me, I moved to the Los Angeles area about 25 years ago for undergrad. I got an undergrad in film at USC. Um, and I'll mention this now, but I, it'll probably come back a little later. But as a result of just going to USC, I incurred a lot of student loans. And that is why I, I'm a veteran of the US Air Force and California Air National Guard, uh, because even though I joined shortly after 9-11, I did not join because of 9-11. I joined to get help paying off my student loans. And even though in some places people say that economic draft isn't as bad as it used to be, and for those who don't know, the economic draft is basically, you know, we got rid of conscription in the armed forces, but if you are a low-income person, and many times that means if you're a person of color, oftentimes the only opportunity in your community is coming from the Army, Navy, Air Force, uh, Air National Guard, Navy National Guard, Coast Guard recruiter. And they will help you find some opportunity somewhere else and or pay for you to go to that college that's you know close to your home, but you can't pay for. Um, so that's, that's when I joined the National Guard and US Air Force, I was active for two years and then I was in the reserve for four. Uh, but you know, during that time, I pursued my actual interest. I wrote some screenplays. I joined the Screen Actors Guild was in that for about 10 years. Unfortunately for me, um, maybe not unfortunately, uh, it took me a very long time to join the Screen Actors Guild, now sag after, But almost immediately as I joined, I became much more uh, passionately involved with politics and more activism and organizing. Uh, I used to tell people I was much more radical when I was younger. Uh, and when I mean younger, I mean like when I was 11, uh, which is true. Uh, I was not exactly hooey from the boondocks, but you know, not that far off. Uh, but uh, around that time, the Citizens United ruling came down, Occupy was popping off. That's when I got really involved in activism. And I, I started doing that for a while, you know, as a volunteer, but eventually everybody knows, eventually you're volunteering 80 hours a week and you're still working your 40 hour job and you're like, this, this isn't gonna, this is not sustainable. Uh, which is why I chose to get my MSW at UCLA. Cause I was like, seems like I'm going to do this for a while. Let's, let's have a degree that makes me, you know, be able to pay my rent. Uh, so I got my MSW, but while I was doing that, I worked in Malibu doing therapy, but then I also worked at community coalition in South LA. Uh, and then I also did an environmental justice fellowship with the Liberty Hill Foundation, which is one of the social justice oriented foundations that's probably funded every, you know, every group that uh, is doing good work in Los Angeles County and not not even hyperbole right there. Um, but through uh, UCLA and Liberty Hill, I got to meet a lot of elected officials and a lot of other people. During that time span, I was on the MLK committee here in Culver City, where we put on a celebration of Martin Luther King junior each year. I was on that committee for over a decade, maybe like 12 years. Uh, but at one of our celebrations, our former mayor, Megan Sully Wells, mentioned that 
there had never been an African-American council member in Culver City's history. And I was like, oh, wow, it's the 21st century. Why is that? Uh, so that was my sort of motivator. I had been thinking about jumping into politics for a while, um, but frankly, I didn't want to do it. Uh, I, I love the arts. I love acting. I love you know writing music, even if it's bad. You know, I love writing screenplays, directing. That's really my thing. Um, but, you know, I didn't see anybody really jumping up and saying, I'll be the first. Um, so I jumped in. Of course, I lost my first time in 2016 by 134 votes. And then in 2018, I won. And my two biggest motivators from a policy perspective were one, I was and am a renter. And I stayed in the same place in Culver City for 17 years before I moved mostly because we did not have rent control and I didn't know what the environment was gonna be like if I moved somewhere else. Like it looks affordable on paper, I can make that deposit, but is my rent gonna go up 50%? Because it could prior to rent control. And the last few times the council talked about rent control, many people's uh, rent went up by 100%. Uh, the second issue was the Inglewood oil field. And when I say I was more radical when I was young, I mean that uh, my first experience with activism was uh, collecting petition signatures to try to ban offshore oil drilling in Florida, um, where I grew up, born in Alabama, grew up in Florida, uh, to H.W. Bush, to tell you how old I actually am. Um, he never got back to me. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, in, in the regional context, in the Culver City context, uh, I've been working with the Sierra Club and volunteering for about eight years prior to running for office. And our focus was trying to get the Inglewood oil field closed down. A number of our members had contracted cancer. A number of their family members and friends had died of cancer uh, who live here in Culver City or close by. Uh, so that was a really big priority for me. And those two things really combined uh, to get me elected. Was fortunate enough to be elected with the number of people who mostly, not always, agree with me. And, you know, even though I used to push back when people say you're changing our city, I don't really much as much anymore. I'm, I'm more like, yeah, we are for the better. And we've made a lot of change in the very short amount of time. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I have witnessed and experienced it. Uh, I actually experienced that like 100% rent hike <laughs> um, in 2018, actually. Um, and, and was fortunate enough to, you, you know, still be able to afford it. And I, I can only imagine what that did to pe people of color here in Culver City, because uh, Although, uh, you know, we have, I, I think, gotten a little bit more progressive. Uh, the, uh, there certainly hasn't been an increase, I think, of, of people of color here, particularly Black people. Um, and, you know, that, that that's important and telling. Um, and and I, I appreciate the, the work you do uh, addressing the social determinants of health. And even though that's become like this buzz phrase, um, it's something social workers have been talking about for a long time because they are pivotal to our mental well-being. Um, and and I, I don't think a lot of people think about that sometimes. And social workers just don't have to be focused on this, like uh, mental health, mental health. Um, but really, we can branch out and try and address these other things that really uh, mess with okay. their mental health. 
like uh, housing restrictions. I know I, I've spoken a couple of times to try to bring well, light with the closely from our homes of how, you know, our housing policy around here is built off of racism so that, you know, that historical trauma, you know, kind of trickles down. And a lot of Black people don't live here because we can't afford to live here because of these laws that our policies are put in place decades ago. Yeah, and I was going to say, like, um, even though some of the original social workers were white women and racist um, and pathologizing, one of the things that you can also say they were, were, you know, they were mesosocial workers, you know, like they did direct service, but then they advocated. And I feel like, you know, one of the things, both in the public imagination and then also in some of the people in my cohort and my MSW, uh, you know, they think of social workers being very limited when it's super broad. Um, you know, when people talk to me and anytime I encounter a social worker, no matter what their age are, some younger than me, some older than me, and they're very political, I always ask them if they've ever thought about running for office, because I feel like a lot of macro social work, the policy making uh, that you that you experience in office, more so at the local level, but also at the state and federal level, it's social work. It's you trying to deliver service to your population. It's you trying to improve service to your population. It's you trying to get more people housed. It's you trying to get more people, you know, in in healthcare and mental health. Uh, without breaking their bank. It's you trying to get people, you know, more assistance. And, you know, people gloss over that fact, but it's like, that's what we do. Like the best politicians from a liberal perspective, from a historically liberal perspective, the current liberal perspective is a little too conservative for me. But um, from a historical perspective, you know, it's like even LBJ, even that man who said the n-word all the freaking time uh you know had the great society uh policy and you know that was a whole lot of good that was basically a social work type of policy fdr of course uh the new deal a lot of these the the social security act you know all of these things are basically social work uh some of them even have social in the name and uh i think there are a lot of people who are social workers who don't see themselves as elected officials because there's this distance. And one of the things that I've tried to do in the office, especially with young people is try to say, hey, we're not elected because we have some special talent or because we're different or better than you. Uh, we just had enough ego to think that we, we, we could tell people what to do, that's about it. Um, my other joke that I make on the federal level is, Politicians are just like you and me, just dumber. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I try to use that as a, as a means to motivate people more than to actually disparage uh, politicians, because I think we do have a lot of good ones in our area in particular. Uh, we, we, we have it better than, than most of L.A. County and most of California and most of the country. You know, you're bringing up a good point. Merrily, and that is lack of representation 
And uh, I appreciate you saying talking to the younger folks and, and so that they can see, because when they don't see that represented, it's hard to fathom, right, that, that I can do this, even at the graduate level for those who come from undergrad straight into graduate school to not see what that looks like, you're right. It becomes very micro-focused as far as what I can only do with social work, even though there's a great vastness of what folks can do with, with a social work degree. So I, I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. Hey, Mayor Lee, you came and spoke to my class last year or the year before last, I believe. I can't remember which one, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, just to drive that point home that we are, um, we have that capacity to run for office, uh, and should, um, to, to, to bring our perspective to policymaking. Uh, we, there's a big push for, you know, business people to run and they get to put their perspective, uh, or spin into policy. And this is why we end up where we, where we are, um. You know, where everything is about the dollar and not about the individual. Um, yeah, and I, I think that's an issue very generally because it's not like I'm advocating for like all of the business people and the lawyers and elected offices to be replaced by exclusively social workers is that, you know, we don't have variety in terms of our elected officials. You know, it's yeah. either someone who got popular a lot of times on the conservative side, but sometimes on the liberal side, because they were an asshole, frank frankly, you know, they did something, they got popular and people are like, why don't you run for Senate? Um, or it's lawyers and business people. It's occasionally medical doctors, very, very occasionally. Um, but, you know, it's often not teachers or nurses or social workers or even construction workers or retail workers, people who, you know, might have a job, but also are very connected to their community. You know, there's a lot of stuff that we tell people, you know, at a certain point, especially when people are, young people are frightened about what they're doing with their life. They say, your job isn't necessarily your life. Well, we don't really give space for people who have actually taken that to heart. People who, you know, might work at Rite Aid or Ralph's, but then they're also like, the president of their community association and they volunteer with these seven different groups and you know they feed homeless people every saturday and not just on christmas and thanksgiving like those people are pretty much like you can't run for office i'm sorry you just work at a grocery store and that's not the way it should be like uh the if we really want to represent the interest of the entire country then we need to elect different people as it is after a few years most people in Congress are millionaires and most people in the country are not. Um, most people in Congress are the 1% and that's not the way it should be. Um, where, what are some of the things that you are trying to get done uh, here at Culver City and just in general that you think uh, really focuses on uh, the mental well-being of people of color and, and particularly black people. So I'm going to talk a little bit about like uh, my overall agenda, because I do think it relates to mental health and then explicitly mental health. So overall, like most of the things that I wanted to get done 
while in the office, we've been able to either start doing or get done in the first two or three years. Um, and I'm happy about that. Rent control, closing down the Inglewood oil field, a few other things. Um, this year as mayor, I wanted to be sure that one, and we're having this discussion in June, last year we passed a an apology for the city's history as a sundown town, but the action steps included that in that policy were a provision for a truth and reconciliation process and for reparations. And I wasn't really sure this was gonna pass at all because not many places in the country slash one other verified places passed reparations, um, but it passed you know, three to two along the uh, liberal to conservative uh, polarized line. Uh, but then, you know, we didn't talk about it for like six months, eight months, nine months. So after I became mayor, I was like, I want to talk about it. I want to make sure that we're actually doing as much as we can to actually do this. We're held up a little bit by Prop 209, the anti-affirmative action uh, proposition that was passed in the late 90s. Uh, but in June, we're going to talk about what we could actually do. And I think a lot of that will relate to uh, housing and homelessness as homelessness in uh, LA County is disproportionately black, but reparations and the talk around reparations really address from a mental health perspective, uh, generational trauma about being born into the system that sees you as less and does that overtly and covertly, you know, implicitly and explicitly uh, and trying to, you know, extract more value, you know, to say that, no, I am just as worthy as you. And I think, you know, that that's that's really resonant on the reparations perspective. Um, the thing that we started just a couple months ago was to have a conversation around uh, a 100 percent affordable housing overlay, which would more or less make it easier to build affordable housing and make it more competitive with uh, market rate housing. Um, Cambridge, Massachusetts has the most successful overlay. Berkeley, California um, has one as well. Uh, and there are various overlays here in Southern California. They're not necessarily about affordable housing, but they streamline the process of uh, development for particular purposes. I think if we can move forward with that, and it's going to be a multi-year process, which is why even though I'm not running for re-election, I'm working on the campaigns or helping the campaigns of folks who support it so the process can keep going. Um, I think that will pay dividends because when we talk about mental health, when you're on the street, a lot of people who are privileged say a lot of these folks are on the street because they have mental health issues or substance abuse issues. A lot of the folks that I meet uh, and meet on a regular basis who are unhoused say, well, maybe it's the other way around. Maybe I developed a mental health issue because I was on the street and I was isolated and I didn't speak to anybody for a month. Or the only people who spoke to me were police officers and other people who were insulting me or trying to drive me away. Um, and or maybe I was depressed because I was on the street and I've been able to provide for myself for 30, 40, 50, 60 years and I no longer can. So I turned to a substance uh, to you know, assuage my feelings. Uh, I, I think there's a whole lot of complications there, but the long and the short, from a mental health perspective, you know, for a long time, social work has been ideologically focused on housing first, uh, and that's been supported by uh, evidence and research studies. So I think that's an important part. 
Another thing that I'm pushing, and we had our initial conversation, not this Monday, but the Monday before, raising the minimum wage. Um, the minimum wage in California moved to $15 this year. I remember demonstrating with the Occupy and us asking for $15 an hour like 11 years ago. Uh, <laughs> and I feel like it would have been like a fairly all right upgrade 11 years ago, but right now it's, it's, it's a poverty wage and LA city, Santa Monica and West Hollywood on July 1st, we'll all have a higher minimum wage than we do. So if we want to actually be competitive from a business perspective, if that's how people want to speak, um, they need to actually, we, we need to actually raise our wage uh, so that people doing the same job in Culver City can get paid the same. Uh, nationally, I think we need to have a, we need to return to the conversation about a living wage. Uh, lastly, and I'm not sure if my colleagues are going to go for this, one of the other things that I'm pushing, and I had uh, the participatory budgeting project give a presentation to the uh, Finance Advisory Committee, is uh, participatory budgeting. Uh, our process here in Culver City and the processes in most municipalities when it comes to the budget are pretty closed. The public can make a comment after a whole lot of decisions are made and a lot of the variance that could happen is either we're going to do this or we're going to do that. There's no direct opportunity for the public to say, I think we should do this instead, or I think this should be a priority. Most participatory budgeting processes across the country really just allot a subset of money for a subset of the public to decide how it gets used. But, you know, there are a variety of ways that we can get engaged or we can engage the community. And I think if we engage people on participatory budgeting, maybe they would actually show up to some of our budget study sessions uh, because we had, I think a total of five people over the last two days, Monday and Tuesday on our budget set study sessions. And then prior to that, uh, when we had uh, two other initial days of budgeting, we had maybe five and, um, you know, it, that, that, it, it's odd because that's the thing that no matter where you are in the political spectrum, people care about most, the budget. And that's the thing that they show up least for. And I don't believe our budget sessions are, are scheduled for 3 p.m., which, which really taps out a whole lot of people who work. Uh, and I've spoken about that and the need to change that. Uh, not everybody on the council has agreed or not enough people at this point, uh, but I do think a participatory budgeting process would help even from a mental health perspective because it would give people a bit more agency and what's happening in their community. And they would feel less helpless, like people aren't listening to them. There are a number of people who email me and or troll me on Twitter who say I'm not listening to them. Um, I am. Oftentimes what they're saying is offensive, prejudiced, or racist. Uh, so I choose not to respond. Others I have responded to, but they like to pretend I haven't. Um, so I just let them be after I respond at least one time. Uh, but but I but I believe a, a lot of economic policies and for people who are in a comfortable situation, they they don't exactly understand. 
a lot of economic policies are really the way to improve mental health, to prevent substance abuse, to prevent the development or the worsening of anxiety and depression, and to prevent domestic abuse and physical abuse. Agreed. Uh, while I know that you are have ran and will be running for uh, representative offices or positions to represent uh, people that look like you uh, and others as well, but how do you uh, influence um, more engagement from people that look like us? Um, because I, you know, I happen to know that in a lot of, uh, and, and even in places like LA, uh, when the city council meet, even though they have black representatives on council, the people that still show up um, whether that's because of the poor times that they hold their meetings, um, but it tends to usually be people who uh, feel like they have something to lose on Black people um, and pissed off voters who show up to uh, these hearings or meetings uh, to voice their opinion. How would you get more Black people, uh, particularly Black social workers to participate? Well, here in Clover City, I think the youth have made a big uh, splash like POC for Change has um, been, been doing a fairly good job. I think they um, spoken with some of them recently uh, because we haven't seen them as much lately, even though some are connected with Vote 16 and we put did put that ballot measure uh, on the ballot for November uh, to potentially let 16 year olds vote in municipal elections. Um, but I think they've been doing some good work. I've been surprised uh, in certain districts about um, how some black elected officials are perceived in LA city. Um, not to get too political, but uh, I thought some would be more well received than I had anticipated. Others, I assumed, you know, people didn't really know and or had a negative opinion of. Um, I, I think the big thing for any type of elected representative is actually not to, I mean, it's basic social work principle, like go to where the people are. And I feel like for the most part, elected representatives, especially on the federal level, you know, they're like, I'm here, come to me. Uh, and I feel like that's uh, that's the wrong approach. Um, that's something that encourages people to, you know, do what everyone says, speak truth to power. Uh, but I always say, of course, and I think I said it in your class, it's great to speak truth to power. It's better to have power. And if you are an elected representative who actually really does care about the community, uh, I think, you know, it's you need to create structures through which the community feels empowered, not just heard, but empowered. And I think there are a lot of younger politicians and some older ones who are talking more and more about co-governance and similar to the um, participatory budgeting project and the notion of participatory um, 
budgeting, you know, co-governance really doesn't create a policy and then ask the community what their opinion is, but really sources the policy with the community. And a lot of organizations like Community Coalition and Scope and uh, Scope in particular, but others across the county have basically been creating policy and legislation themselves, uh, Policy Link and others, uh, and then approaching elected officials who they think are within the same mode of thinking. I would want to go a step further. I've often spoken about this. I spoke about it last year and have something that's more like a people's session where individuals and organizations can come and suggest legislation with the, with the caveat that they, you know, would have to demonstrate why it is needed and who it would benefit. Uh, but I think in that way, we can address some of the gaps that we see when legislation passes and we pat ourselves on the back uh, case in point, I can't recall the specifics right now, so forgive me, but there was legislation that was passed on the state level in California with the intention of more or less legalizing street vending, which is, you know, normal across L.A. County and, you know, many places across California. But what it resulted in was making it much more expensive uh, for street vendors to actually be on the street. And, you know, when it was initially trying to be enforced, you know, it ran a couple of folks out of business. Uh, a lot of jurisdictions chose to ease up on the increased requirements for licensing and the increased requirements for the type of cart that you can have. Um, but it's still like a murky area. And if there had been you know, more outreach and more collaboration when it comes to policy from the start, street vendors would have been like, whoa, uh, so you mean I got to spend another $1,500 uh, just to be in business? Do you know how slim my profit margins are? I don't know if I can do that. You know, like that part. Absolutely. And, and I, I feel like that's just an example of like, if you don't involve the community in solving the problems that are in the community, then you're just coming in and pathologizing and saying, hey, this is your problem and this is how you should solve it rather than let me, rather than saying, educate me on what you think the problem is in your community and what you think the best solution might be. Well, um, coming up at the end here, um, I would love to see you uh, in higher office to bring some of these ideas, um, you know, to get more input from uh, the individual. Uh, it's important. One of my big things is always uh, government um, civics, uh, refocusing on that. I don't feel like there's enough engagement sometimes, particularly like in these larger school systems like LAUSD. Uh, Culver City obviously has you know, uh, more privileged, you know, probably uh, <laughs> system. Um, but we want to thank you for uh, coming on with us today um, and uh, sharing your story um, and, and 
giving us a little bit of uh, perspective on uh, your take and how you're uh, addressing mental health for people of color. Thank you, appreciate you. Definitely, thanks for having me. Um, I think it's super important when we talk about certain issues like homelessness and like housing, like policing, um, it's important to make that distinction between black and people of color because there is racism that all of us deal with, but then there is very pointed anti-blackness that comes from all sectors and not just white people. It comes from some black people as well, Asian communities, Latino communities, et cetera. And it's different than what other people deal with and it should be handled differently. Absolutely. Good note to end on. Well said. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, thank you uh, to our listeners and uh, we'll see you next episode. Thank you for listening to the Chill Spot Radio. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on our webpage at chillspotradio.com.